Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. All set for your flight? Yep, I've got everything I need. Eye mask, neck pillow, T-Mobile, headphones. Wait, T-Mobile? You bet. Free in-flight Wi-Fi. 15% off all Hilton brands. I never go anywhere without T-Mobile. Same goes from a water bottle, chewing gum, nail clippers, okay, passport. Okay, I'm going to leave you to it. Find out how you can experience travel better at T-Mobile.com slash travel. Qualifying plan required. Wi-Fi were available on select U.S. airlines. Deposit and Hilton Honors membership required for 15% discount. Terms and conditions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? Beaming for the both of us, given the hour. I fucking hate you. Um, (laughs) It is very, very early on a Friday morning, but we are here to discuss Liverpool versus Luton, which takes place this weekend. Uh, We'll also be discussing a number of other things, as we have deemed, or more so I have deemed, that... Luton don't really need an hour of our discussion. Uh, They are third from bottom in the league. They've collected just one win and five points in the league. So 20 to 25 minutes will likely do them just fine. So let's focus in on some other things. First things first, a game that takes place this weekend, which is arguably the biggest game in European football, and that is Borussia Dortmund at home to Bayern Munich. Harry Kane's first first run in one of these in front of the yellow wall. This should be a really good game, Carl, because both sides have made pretty good starts to the league campaign. Uh, Dortmund sits second. Oh, sorry, Bayern sits second right now, two points behind Leverkusen. Dortmund are two points behind Bayern. Both sides are unbeaten. Bayern are scoring for fun, and defensively they look pretty good with the addition of Kim. Dortmund have a lot of exciting talent. They're just, in typical Dortmund fashion, drawing one too many games. Yeah, um, I mean, like you said, both of them made a really, really good start to the season. There's been some hit-and-miss moments for for Dortmund, uh, especially like right at the start, but then you know, lovely winning run to get themselves back in amongst things. Um, it's looking nice and together and tight at the top of the table, five points between the top five teams. And um, I'm sure at some point this season, we'll do a nice deep dive on Leverkusen as well, because, you know, plenty of Liverpool links there to be to be discussed along the way as well. Mm. But I think for German football as a whole, definitely for European football elite end, basically the more challenges to get in Bayern's way, the better, because we know ultimately if they want to win the league, if they are focused on winning the league, if they're not a a wreck of a club, they probably will. So Mm. it does take like multiple obstacles for them to, to stop them doing that basically. So uh, Dortmund obviously have to be one of those. 
Leverkusen uh, are making themselves one. Leipzig are habitually one these days, but maybe not quite the biggest of ones. So it, it basically, the more potential for Bayern to be tripped up, the more interesting that league as a whole is going to be. Obviously, Bayern Munich fans are not going to see it that way, but we're talking from an outsider's perspective here. Um, and I do think that the start of the season has been really, really interesting, not just because they're tied together, but because you've got multiple teams there who haven't lost a game yet. And it just shows that they are performing at a very, very high level. Um, Stuttgart are the, the only one of that top four who have. They've lost twice, but they've won seven, which, like you said, Dortmund's drawn too many games. They haven't been beaten. Stuttgart have lost twice, but Stuttgart are ahead of them. Yes. Yeah. You know, that that's what happens. Liverpool know that from... Liverpool fans, I should say, know that from from years and years of too many draws and not enough titles. So draws will kill you. Occasionally, I think they're absolutely fine. Obviously, sometimes you just have a barnstorming game. And like, uh, last weekend against Eintracht, they were two goals down in 25 minutes. You come back to draw that game, you you maybe feel all right, especially with a, uh, a very late second equaliser, let's say. So that's okay in isolation, but it is when you have too many of them, when you don't convert the ones you should win against, you know, bottom half teams. Darmstadt was it earlier in the season. Um, that kind of game, especially when Bayern are going out and trouncing them, shall we say, um, is is something that you look back on later in the season and think, yeah, we needed to do a bit better there. Yeah, I mean, it's the Guardiola thing of, of win or lose, but don't draw, because draws will kill you over the course of the season. This season in the Premier League, City have lost twice. Arsenal are unbeaten, and yet they have the same points tally. Now, Arsenal are currently ahead of City on goal difference, but Arsenal are 10 games unbeaten. City have lost twice, and it's still just goals scored separating the two sides. One goal. And, you know, you're backing City over the course of the season to score more goals than Arsenal. Um, Stuttgart are the surprise package here in, in the Bundesliga this season. Considering... They stayed up last year by the absolute skin of their teeth uh, having to go through the relegation playoff. Sebastian Honus has done an amazing an amazing job this year. He was appointed in April. He kept them up. And this season he has them playing tremendous football and getting the results that they need. Um so impressed with him. I, I, I liked what he did at Hoffenheim. I, I didn't think he had the backing that previous managers had had there. And obviously it, it did go quite badly towards the end of his tenure there. But overall, I, I quite liked what he did. But you're right. It, the reason teams other than Bayern win the league is because Bayern have a big dip. The only manager in the last... 20 years, I suppose, to to actually take a title from Bayern is Jurgen Klopp. Otherwise, you are heavily reliant. No matter how good you are, you are heavily reliant on them to have a bad season. They've just been so incredibly dominant. They had a, a rough 90s, and before that, they were never as dominant. There was always somebody else that would at least be able to match them, whether it was, you know, Werder Bremen in the 80s or it was that great, Munching Gladbach team in the 70s. There was always Bayern and somebody else. It's only in the last 20 years it's really become Bayern and then everybody else. But this should be a good game. I mean, we, we might as well we might as well admire the fact that Harry Kane has made an incredible start to life as a Bayern Munich player. And he is finding German football to be very, very favourable uh, to him. Thus far this season, he has 14 goals and seven assists in less than 1,100 minutes. So for those keeping score, that's in and around a goal or assist every 50 minutes through 13 games. Like that, that is, it's outrageous. Um, would you Would you think that he expected after a quarter of the season, nine league games, to have 12 goals in nine league games and still not be the top scorer in the league? No. No, I would imagine that has come as a bit of a shock to him. I, I think when he was weighing up his options, he was probably 
considering the golden boot each and every year to be automatic, because I'd imagine he thought he'd be able to score at maybe not quite this pace, but at a goal a game. But Gurassi is <laughs> 14 goals is uh, is an incredible is an incredible achievement, especially considering, like, if you'd told him that Haaland was still in the league, then he might have thought, okay, I'll have real competition for it. But, I mean, Garassi has 15 goals in all competitions this season, Carl. He's played nine games. And this is the best season of his career in terms of goal tally already. If he stops now, he will have scored more goals this season than he had in any other season in his career. And last season was his career high with 14 and 28. So it is, it's outrageous what Garassi is doing. Um, I, it, he's, he's broken Lewandowski's record of the most goals through seven matches. Now the most goals through, uh, through eight matches. I, I'm, I'm stunned at, at what he's putting together this season because Kane, you expected from. Kane is, I think, the best number nine in the world. With the greatest of respect, Garassi is someone I would have just tagged as, you know, decent. Yeah, I think that's fair. Like you say, his previous season best of 14 goals, or you know, it's, it's, it's okay. It's pretty good. It's, it's good for a, a top-level forward if you can do that kind of thing consistently. He, I wouldn't even say he was in the consistently doing that bracket previous to that, but it is an outrageous start. Obviously, sometimes things just come together absolutely perfectly, and he's got two hat-tricks and a brace and an assist in his last like four league games or five league games, whatever it is. So, I mean, a purple patch doesn't even come into it. Absolutely brilliant. But Kane, obviously, you would think across the course of the season still has the... Uh, the weight of what he's done previously to back mm. up suggestion that he can do it across the course of the season, even if it's, let's say, 30 league goals across 30. It, it feels matches. more sustainable for Harry Kane. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Do you remember when we were kids and, like, if a striker was was a one-and-two striker, a goal yeah. every two games, that was seen <laughs> as, like, that's the elite level. Yeah. God be with the days when defenders were actually allowed to defend. Uh on the topic of strikers, let's talk about Ivan Tony, currently serving a ban until the 17th of January 2024 for gambling offences. He is rumoured, and it is just rumours, but he is rumoured to have told Brentford that he would like to leave in January. And we have some reports that Manchester United will target a striker in January to sort of take some of the pressure off Rasmus Hoysland. Now, I think a Tony Hoysland front two can also work. You don't just need to play one or the other. Because Tony, Tony to me is like, let's say you'd like to sign a Harry Kane, but you don't have the money for a Harry Kane. So what's the next level down of a Harry Kane? I think it's an <laughs> Ivan Tony. <laughs> Well, yeah, to be fair, that might be the level up from Harry Kane. We can't, we can't be certain at this point. But Ivan Tony's a brilliant all-round striker. He's a really good goal scorer, but he's also great in the hold-up game. His link play is brilliant. His passing is very, very good. He works his arse off. He does everything well all across the pitch. I... I don't think United is the right move for him because I don't think United is the right move for anybody at the moment. But then he's also been linked to Chelsea and to Arsenal. And I don't really like those moves for him either. The Chelsea one makes sense. Kind of, sort of. But he's also not on the same. Well, see, I do... But then they have Gabriel Jesus, Mm. who I think is outstanding. And I think his all-round game is also phenomenal. And his creative side has really come to the forefront since joining Arsenal. I think he has helped Saka and Martinelli go up a level. The issue with him since joining Arsenal has obviously been injuries. He missed 12 games last season. 
He's already missed three this season. I just don't know that Arsenal need a number nine. You've got Jesus, you've got Enketia, you've got Kai Havertz, whose best role is as a number nine. Like, if if I was advising Ivan Tony or I was advising a club to buy Ivan Tony, that club would be Spurs. That's the best move for him, in my opinion. And I think that's how they, if they want to really sustain a challenge, if they get to January and they're actually sustaining a pace where it looks like they could win the league, I think that's how you do it. If you drop him in as the nine and have Kulisewski, Madison and Son behind him, I think that opens up a whole new world for them and elevates them to real contender status. Like I could, it'll definitely work at Arsenal. I I don't know that Arsenal have the money though. Arsenal couldn't afford to buy David Rea outright in 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 the summer. So do they have the money to go and spend sixty, seventy, eighty million? Will United? Are you that person who has everything, the coolest merch, and those must-have fan threads? Well, over at our Anfield Index shop, we've gone that extra mile when it comes to pimping up your Liverpool collection. From our popular range of bespoke design T-shirts, sweaters, hoodies and hats, to our signature edition mugs, prints and coasters, all provided with fast worldwide shipping. We have something for every red. We also stock official LFC merchandise and are licensed with the Premier League and UEFA to sell official iron-on shirt badges and sleeve patches. As a listener to this podcast... You can get 10% off everything with coupon code AIPRO10. Just head over to anfieldindex.shop or find us on Etsy by searching for Anfield Index. I imagine United probably would do if they sort out the partial takeover, let's say. That's a big if. Yeah, I guess Arsenal's would be along the same lines as Raya, a loan in January to make it permanent in summer to throw the, the cost forward into the next year. Um, Chelsea, who knows? Because nobody really seems able to get a grasp. They don't on seem to care what, about what their numbers anyway. are doing at all. I mean, to be fair, if you give Poyet a two hundred and four year contract, that's probably okay anyway. Um, sorry, <laughs> t- Tony. Um, I I don't think United's a good move for him at all. I no. really don't. I think at this point, if you're leaving Brentford, especially coming off the back of a, you know an absence for for a while, it's because you think that you're in a place now to actually go and be the best that you can be. Like in the next 18, 24 months, you're going to be the very, very best you can. And I think if that's going to be the case, you need an environment which is already set up to allow you to plug and play and just do it and just do what you can do. United's not that, like you just said. No. It's, not a, it's not that point at all at the moment. He'd be, I think Tony would probably be quite important for them, but I don't think he would be able to perform as well as he needs to. And also if it turned out like Hoyland in 12 months, just absolutely exploded. Tony would just be left on the side. That's, that's just what would happen there. Uh, yeah. And it would be, you know, a year and a half of being a sub, being a backup. Basically your prime is then gone. You try to get a move. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. Maybe it's another manager. It's just, it just feels a very, very poor move for him to be honest. It does. It definitely does. And like I say, they could play the two of them, but I feel like if they're going to play a front two, if that was something they were going to move to, Hoyland and, and Rashford is the Rashford. two to go to. Yeah. That's the pair. They, that, they, they should have been playing a front two for years, United. Yeah. They, they've always had the people to play a front two, split forwards, really good channel runners, maybe not necessarily had the the focal point since, let's say, oh, the heady loan days of Rodio um, Carlo. but you know they've had people who can play split channels they've had Marshall and Rashford have been all right together at times they obviously had Ronaldo for what they could have done this for ages yeah and never committed to it flashed it sometimes and never committed to it and you know people talk about United getting back to what they were always great at and one of the things they were always great at was by with with that kind of electric speed and attack and a front two and if they played those two up front and let's say they took Bruno in on the right, kind of floating from the right channel into central areas, Garnacho can be your width and speed on the left. That all of a sudden becomes a very dangerous attacking four. Bruno's got great delivery as well. So 
he'll be the main supply line if they could sort out their central midfield pairing and get, you know, a couple of lads that can maybe run a little bit, they would all of a sudden become a much bigger threat to teams. There's a reason that he scored 11 goals in the league so far this season. It's pathetic watching them go forward. Very pathetic I, watching them defend as well. To it, it's, it's, it's actually even worse watching them defend. It, I, think, I think it's far worse. It's that, but, but that to me is more like you can take bad defenders and set them up in a setup, mm. a structure where they will at least be competent. The issue at United for me defensively is a coaching thing. It attack, it's a personnel thing, I think, largely because there's no base to attack from. But I think it's a coaching issue there. Um, I, I think like Arsenal's a plug and play fit for him. He walks into Arsenal, he's got Saka one side, Martinelli the other side. We've seen what he can do with lesser players, good players in Wissa and in Bomo, but they're lesser players than the quality of Saka and Martinelli. I, I just look at it and say, well, you, you've got Gabriel Jesus, you've you've got Eddie and Ketia, you've got Kai Havertz. You don't have a quality backup for Saka. You don't have another option in midfield so you can go Odegaard, someone, and Rice. Rice in that left-sided eight channel, which is where he should be, his best role, you don't have that quality backup at centre-back. Now, it, maybe it's Julian Timber when he gets fit. It's not Ben White. It's just not Ben White. He's not a good centre-back. I, I think Arsenal, if if they are going to further stretch their finances, I just think they've got other things they should be focused on rather than Ivan Tony. Chelsea, I mean, the thing for me with Chelsea is, as as good as Ivan Tony is, I'd probably be looking for someone a few years younger than him, more in the age bracket of Nkunku and Mudrik and Noni Mudeki and these younger players like Enzo and, and Caicedo in midfield, somewhere in that 21 to 25 age bracket is where I'd be looking for my number nine. Because that's where the rest of your team is going to be. Reese James, Chilwell, Colwell or Badiashile, Fafana or Disassi, they're all in that sort of age bracket. I I don't know that like if I Ivan Tony's in his peak now, and unfortunately he's, you know, lost a big chunk of it, but I think by the time the rest of that group are ready to be year-on-year contenders for Premier League titles and Champions Leagues, I think he'll just be ticking past his prime. So for me, that's just not the right age profile for them, even though I think it would fit and he'd work well. I I just look at Spurs and I think him with Madison behind, Son off the left, Kulisewski off the right, I, I just think they'd be absolute dynamite. And then you've got... Horo, who's a good crosser, and Adoji, who's a good crosser. That central midfield pairing they've got going, Basuma and Sar is outstanding. The centre-back pairing is outstanding. The goalkeeper looks like one of the finds of the summer. I kind of feel like in that starting eleven, he might be the last piece of the puzzle for now. Now, again, I'm not saying it would be a title-winning team, and they certainly need a lot more depth behind it, but I really like the idea of that starting eleven. What would you do if you're Brentford? How much would you take and where would you go? See, this is the thing. He's got 18 months left on his contract. So they might say, well, we want 100 million, but that's not realistic. It's also not realistic because he's Ivan Tony. He's not Harry Kane. You know, he's not, he's not a hundred million pound player in my view. And I'm maybe the biggest fan he's got. I kind of be looking in that 60 to 70 million pound range. I think that's a fair price for him, given what he's got left on his contract, given what he's shown in the Premier League. Did get 20 goals, obviously, last season, 12 the year before, but it is only a two-season sample. It's not like he's got eight or nine years behind him. 
I, I think he's a fantastic player. I really do. But, I mean, they paid five million and another 10 in add-ons, which I would imagine has all been reached. I think if you get 60 to 65 for him, it's a 50 million profit. I think that's really, really good. I think that's that's exactly what they would have hoped for when they signed him three years ago. Yeah, and look, I think it's every single box ticked in that everything has happened for Tony between the club and the setup and the promotion and the goals and impressing and him improving. He's done as much as he could and probably Brentford have done as much as they could. This might be a deal which just has maxed out and you have to accept that at some point. You know, It's either that or probably from January then into the summer begins the arc of the fee you can get for him lowering. Yeah. So maybe this is just the moment you have to accept what's there. And if that is 60 or even 50, rather than, let's say, you really wanted 70, if mm. 50 is there plus another five in add-ons, is it more worthwhile you taking that than keeping him for six months, getting him for six months on the pitch, where obviously part of that is not going to be fully fit, possibly not going to be fully invested because he wanted to leave. And then in summer, how much are you going to get for him then with one year left on his deal? That might and only be 40. By 50. the summer, he's also 28. Yeah. You know, so like it's tough because I, I think he was a cert to leave this past summer if that ban hadn't happened. I think he was absolutely off to, to wherever. Um, I, I just think Brentford though, like where did they get, I don't mean like specific player, but obviously they've, they've struggled a, a bit in his absence this season. I think it's, mm. it's fine to say like, there's not quite the same constant outlet threat. I think, Wisser and Mbuma have, have been pretty good. Um, Wisser's, you know, a couple of goals at the start. Brian Mbuma has done pretty well overall, but Shada's not, you know, quite done what they were probably hoping for from him. Um, and he's injured. And been injured, yes. Um, what Salon Godos played at the start of the season, I don't know if he's like still considered to be a, a thing, but he played a couple of times at the beginning of the campaign. Scored a um, worldie. Did score was, one worldie. Yeah, but one. Oh and, yeah, well that's that's all he's got. That's all he's got for these days. Yeah, and no no hold up, no assists, which which obviously someone like Tony's backup or second you would want. Keenlos Potter's not fully integrated yet, let's say at no. the very least. Michael Damsgaard, it just hasn't happened whatsoever. You know, there's there's not just one thing they haven't quite managed to get right for their next step. There's like three or four in that one single area of the pitch. Being the, the uber nerd that I am, I had sort of been looking at the Tony situation for a while prior to the ban and kind of trying to figure out where they would go when they sold him. Who were the, the players that would make sense for them? And I landed on two names. And one was Victor Yacarez, who was outstanding for Coventry and has gone on to sporting and has been brilliant and actually scored a hat-trick last night. And I think from an all-round standpoint, he was the one that made the most sense, the the closest thing to a like-for-like that you were going to find. And the other was Victor Boniface, who I thought was a bit more of a gamble. I thought was a bit more of a project. A younger player, he's only 22 whereas Jokerez is in his mid-20s and he's proven in English football. And Boniface had been obviously at, at was at Union St. Gilles last season and, and my concern there was I, I didn't know if Tony Bloom would sell to Matthew Benham. But he's done really well since joining Leverkusen. Outside of those two, I am struggling a little bit to find the right player to replace Ivan Tony and what he does. And I'm wondering if the best thing they could do is either you, you look for a different style of striker or you take a bit of a bigger gamble. And that bit of a bigger gamble, if I was them, would be Santiago Jimenez of Feyenoord, who I think has the potential to be one of the best strikers in Europe. 
I think his next move is absolutely vital. He's done incredibly well with Feyenoord these this past season and a bit. 23 and 45 last season to 15 and 12 this season. I think he's the guy that they should go for. And he will be expensive. He is going to be probably in the 30 to 35 million range. And for Brentford, if they bought him and it didn't work, that would be a calamity. And we've seen, you've, you've mentioned a few there that they've bought for big money. Lewis Potter, Damsgaard, Shade, all 18 to 20 million signings. And at this moment in time, none of them have really worked out. He's double the cost of them. If he doesn't work out, that's probably going to have them doing quite an in-depth review on their processes. But I would back him to work in the Premier League. I think he is exactly the type of striker who will do really well in this league. The other one that I had that I thought they could look at was Joe Pedro, but Brighton snapped him up in like April. So there was there was no real hope of getting getting him unless he'd moved really early, which Brighton did. Outside of outside of Jimenez, just to find that all rounder who can be primary goal scorer, but also one of your main creative forces in attack, which is what Tony is for them. I, I'm really struggling. Hello, I'm here to annoy you. I'm here to annoy you into listening to more of me and more of others on EPL Index. We don't just have the Anfield Index stuff. We've got EPL Index as well, which covers the entirety of the Premier League. And we have three podcasts and a whole bunch of really good writing on EPLindex.com. The podcasts are my own two-footed podcast, which is every day at 4 p.m., Monday through Friday, covering the whole league. We have a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. You know Tadiwa, he does Anfield Index. He presents a Tad Predictable before every Premier League match week. And then Kevin DeVries and his crew on the EPL Roundtable, they're every week after the Premier League match week. So make sure you listen to everything we're doing on EPL Index and follow us there on Twitter at EPL Index. Thank you. Bye-bye. It might be a case that they are better off doing basically what Spurs have done and not going for Harry Kane and putting together a different kind of front line with a different kind of approach. That's it. Yeah, yeah, it, it, that's that's exactly the thing. They, they might be better off switching tact and looking for maybe just more of a poacher because they will create chances. They've got enough p- good players in that team to create chances, but it might just mean that Thomas Frank has to alter how the team plays. I mean, one one name they could look at, maybe someone like a Jonas Wind, who's having a really good season for uh, for Wolfsburg. Now, he's not a big-time goal scorer, but he'll get you, he might get you 10 to 12 a season in the Premier League when he, you know, develops a little bit more. He's, he's 24 now, so 25, he'll be getting ready to hit his prime. He could be a 10-goal and maybe eight assists kind of player. And maybe that will be enough. Or, like we say, they, they could look for more of that, that kind of predatory figure in the box, that, that guy who's just in there to score goals and doesn't do a whole lot else. Like, a, you know, a, a, if they could find a Jota type, that might be, might be the alternative. Uh, moving away from Harry Kane, from Harry Kane and, and Ivan Tony and strikers, but... Sticking with the idea of a big match this weekend and a player who is of interest on the transfer market, the Copa Libertadores final is tomorrow night, 8 p.m. UK kickoff. I believe it's available on the BBC website and on the red button on the remote. And BBC Three, I think, as well. on TV. BBC Three as well. There we go. Boca Juniors versus Fluminense. Uh, one of the weirder... Copas in recent years, uh, neither of these teams were favoured to get to this point. Uh, I think it's fair to say that in no way, shape or form are Fluminense the best of what Brazil and Brazilian football have to offer. They currently sit eighth in the Brazilian Serie A. 
Boca have been really, really weird in the league this year. And they're not performing brilliantly either um, domestically. So it's it's an odd tie. You've got Boca who've gotten here basically because they've been better at penalty shootouts than everybody else. Uh, In each of the knockout rounds, they have won on a penalty shootout against Nacional, against Racing, and against Palmieri's, who I I thought were surefire winners once we got to the semifinals. Uh, Fluminense have knocked out... uh, Sorry, they've knocked out Olympia. No, Argentinos Juniors, then Olympia, and then Internacional. Um, these were the teams kind of ranked fourth and eighth in out of the group stage and into the knockout when they seeded them for the, the draw. I don't know what way to go with this. I feel like Boca just, it, it almost seems like it's written in the stars that they're going to, to win this competition, but they've been, they've not been good and they're, They've been garbage domestically. They currently sit 10th in their group of the <clears throat> the second phase of the Argentine League. But then Fluminense aren't good either. They can't defend. They're, they play a wonderful brand of football that's unlike anything anyone else is playing. But this just... This doesn't feel like it should be the final of this competition, which is after the... Champions League, the second biggest club competition in in world football. It, this doesn't feel like an all that fitting of a final. Name wise, it does, but in terms of what these two sides are, it it just doesn't it it doesn't do it for me. Unfortunately, no, I think um, from a, from a, uh, the perspective of people who might tune in to watch, and, and just to reiterate, we're recording this uh, Friday, so it's the Saturday night game. Um, I think if you're tuning in out of interest, out of curiosity, not a, a game or you know competitions that you usually used to watch or anything like that, from a Liverpool perspective, obviously, first of all, Fluminense midfielder Andre uh, Andre Tindad is one we've been linked with quite a bit, supposedly, according to some. We might go back in for him again in January uh, after he agreed to stay for the culmination of the Copa campaign, which obviously now looks like it was a good decision. Um, so one to watch there. There's also... The, the manager, Diniz, is now the Brazil interim manager. So if you haven't had a chance to look at him before, that's another good opportunity to do that. And like they've mentioned, it's the type of football is really what's causing the uh, the interest around him. Let's say it's not really based on sort of the possession principles, but more of rotation of position, uh, lots and lots of movement off the ball. Uh, a couple of other players who may be familiar with uh, Ganso, uh, who tends to sort of play very, very deep with them at times. Uh, Marcelo used to play for Real Madrid at left back and a 43-year-old goalkeeper, Fabio. Uh, don't who... forget, don't, don't. let's not forget the man at centre-back booting people up in the air <laughs> at 40, Felipe Melo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it, it, it's a team. It's a team which has been put together, we can say that. Uh, on the other side, obviously, Boca, there's three former Man United players, although one of them is predictably suspended. Uh, Marcos Rojo suspended. <laughs> Cavani, Cavani and Romero are going to play, more than likely. Uh, yeah. A couple of others there who you probably remember. I think Gula from World Cups past. Um, about six players called Fernandez in the squad as well. So, you know, that's all, always good to, to listen and watch to. One of whom think- is really interesting. Ezekiel Fernandez is yeah. really interesting. And on the Boca side, him and Valentin Barco are the two to keep an eye on. Barco's like a left-back slash left-winger. Very, very talented. He's been linked to City. Um, there's a high chance he's coming to Europe immediately in January. Uh, Ezekiel Fernandez is the one that is the most interesting for me from both teams because I think he's exactly the type of six that we need. Andre Trindad, Trindad is a really, really good footballer. Like a really good footballer. And yes, he does play in defensive midfield for them in league games. But in the Copa, 
where they've been good, not the league where they've been bad. In the Coppa, he doesn't play as the defensive midfielder. They changed the shape in the Coppa and Alexander comes into the team and he is a proper defensive midfielder. He's your ball winner in there. And it's that pairing of Andre and Alexander that has gotten them to this point. If you look at the results with just Andre and no Alexander, they're not impressive at all. And in fact, if you look at Fluminense's results over the last nine games, starting with the first leg of the semi-final against Internacional, which they drew, they've only won two games. One was the second leg, which, you know, they had to win. And the other was against Goes in a 5-3 in which they were comically open defensively. Now, Matthias Martinelli played in midfield next to Andre on that day. He's not great defensively either. People will point at tackling stats for Andre and say, well, look how good he is at tackling. Yeah, look how good Thiago is at tackling as well. Look at his ball-winning numbers. And why are they so good? Well, because he he roams about and wins the ball all over the field. He's not asked to sit in and hold the midfield together. When Thiago was asked to do that, we were wide open. It was calamitous how bad it was. They're exactly the same when Andre plays there. Teams run through their midfield with reckless abandon because while he's a good ball winner, He's small, he's not the quickest across the ground, and he's too drawn to the ball. And he doesn't protect the defence well enough. Now, could you make him a six? Yeah, maybe, but you're going to lose what makes him such a good player. The issue I have, Carl, is that we already kind of have him in Alexis. Now, he's... He's more Thiago than, than Alexis, but he, they, they're going to uh, perform the same function in our team. Neither of them are defensive midfielders. Alexis, for me, is better defensively than Andre is. So if you're bringing in Andre, you'd be bringing him in to play in the left side at eight role. And then you're leaving Alexis as the six and you're saying, this is who our six is. And that, for me, you're not, you're not going to win the major trophies with Alexis McAllister as your six, as good an all a footballer as he is. He's just not a six, and neither is Andre. Like, he's not the type of six that you want. I've seen people say, oh, he's better than Fabinho. No, he's not. Not better than Fabinho was at his peak. He's not better than Bruno Gamerish. He's similar to Bruno Gamerish, but he's smaller. Gamerish has defensive frailties. He makes up for a lot of them with pure physicality that Andre just doesn't have because he's quite a bit smaller. There you go, people. Many, many reasons to tune in and watch this game. Um, possibly. With I should make that, like, I'm, I'm, I'm in favour of the signing. I, I would like us to bring him in. But given we signed Gravenberg, I just don't think we need another eight. I just, I just don't think we need one. And I've seen people make the argument, oh, yeah, but we play a double pivot now. We do, and the other one is Trent, who couldn't tackle a hot dinner. So, I just, you know, you've got to have someone in there that can win you the ball back and shield your defence. Andre will win you the ball back. The other fella can't shield the defence. Did, did we not watch the Bournemouth game? Have we not watched Trent for the last eight months or however long he's been playing this role? He doesn't shield the defence in there. He's very easily bypassed. His his dribble pass numbers are so far and away the worst they've ever been in his career because teams are just running past him in midfield and they're doing the same to Alexis and they will do the same to Andre. And the thing with Andre is he is properly feisty, so he'll hack people down. In the Premier League, you get booked an awful lot quicker than you do in the Brazilian Serie A and the Copa, he will find disciplinary problems fairly quickly in the Premier League. 
if you play him as a six and ask him to be that player. You'll get games where obviously you control the game and teams don't, some teams won't attack that way. Some teams will have quite a stagnant midfield too. You know, like Villa have a really good midfield too, but neither of them are runners. Neither of them are going to run beyond you. But you put him in then against a team like Spurs with Basuma and Sar and that sort of dynamic power going box to box, that's where you'll have problems. You put him in against a Declan Rice, that's where you'll have problems. Yeah, Teams that have those first. powerful midfielders or that build through that area, like City, they'll expose the issue. So you buy Andre and you play him against Man United. Got it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> against United, he'd be fine. You play him mid- well, you play him midfield by himself against United. Right, but- we best do five, ten minutes on Luton, mate. Yes, we probably should. Uh, right, let's go to their results so far this season. Pumped by Brighton, beaten by Chelsea, beaten by West Ham, beaten by Fulham. A draw at home to Wolves. Wolves had 10 men for nigh on 60 minutes in that game. Um, they did go to Everton and beat the Ev 2-1. Then they lost to Burnley lost a 10-man Spurs, uh, did get a good point away to Forest where they'd been 2-0 down. They were 2-0 down with like seven minutes and stoppage time to go, but they came back and got a result. And then last time out, they were comprehensively outplayed by Aston Villa and lost 3-1. They have five points. They sit 18th in the league. They play a brand of football that you could favorably describe as agricultural. And for me, Carl, when I look at them and think, what do they need? The answer that screams from the back of my head is everything. They need everything. They need a goalkeeper, though Kaminsky's not bad. They need an entirely new defense with the possible exception of Issa Kabori, who they do not own. He's there on loan. They need an entirely new midfield. And up front, you might stick with having Carlton Morris and then Adebayo maybe off the bench, but you would want another forward at least one more. They're not a Premier League caliber team, but they have a way of playing that's not very Premier League friendly. And that is probably their trump card. Maybe they can just long ball their way enough to enough points to stay in the division. I have serious doubts about it, but they have caused teams trouble with how direct they are. It's how they got promoted. It's how they got promoted, by pumping balls into the box. But the the individual quality is severely lacking. I don't need a VPN. I've got nothing to hide. (laughs) This is what I used to tell myself before I hooked up with LibertyShield.com. Not only is my home internet now fully encrypted, but I can now access all the websites I want, whenever I want, and do so from absolutely anywhere. As a Liverpool fan, I love to know I can now watch every match, regardless of whether it's on UK TV or not. My Liberty Shield VPN makes sure nothing is blocked and guarantees me super fast streaming speed throughout that match. You can get connected right now with their software package, which includes a 48-hour no-obligation free trial and instant access to their apps for Apple, Android, Fire TV, PC, Mac and Android TV. Or go a step further like I have and get one of their pre-configured VPN routers. These small but powerful devices allow you to easily connect every device in your home to VPN, making it the perfect solution for smart TVs, mag boxes and games consoles. Visit libertyshield.com today and use coupon code AIVPN25 to get 25% off at checkout. It is like I mean when you when you say what do Luton need the most? What I think the actual answer is is the championship. Like not not for them to be relegated, but yeah. they need to be in the championship to be competitive. Well, that's what they did the this summer, there. isn't it? They yeah. they bought a championship team. Yeah, uh, and look, I think it's 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 fine. It's okay. They know, they know where they are and they know what they are and they they're not trying to hide it or anything like that. And I think that that's perfectly fine. You know, that's that's okay. Um, they are the team with the most long balls per game in the Premier League by. There's a bit of a gap between, let's say, the the top two, three, and then the rest, and the top three are Sheffield United, Everton, and Luton. I don't think anybody would be surprised to to hear that. To be perfectly honest, so they are 
the long ball team in terms of short passes. They are far and away the team with the fewest made this season. Crossers, they are far and away the team with the highest this season. Through balls, they're the only team without one this season. So you you very quickly get a picture of how their build up play is uh, is structured and. Um, effectively how it isn't as well because they're also the team with the lowest possession again by a bit of a distance they are not the team with the fewest shots taken per game so they are effective with what they do um, against someone like Sheffield United who we just mentioned play a lot of long balls but don't get a lot of shots away whatsoever uh, so Luton are more efficient in what they do and how they get the most out of what they've got, let's say. I think it's they're doing as well as they can be expected to do. And at the minute, they're still in touch with the teams, with the team above them, I should mm. say. But I don't think that that's sustainable either because I think Bournemouth have underperformed to what they should have so far. I think the only reason any of the bottom three at the minute are not cut adrift already is simply that Bournemouth have not won, let's say, another one of the games which they should have, basically. Um, you know, it's 10 points, 10 points for Everton and Forest, and then it's six Bournemouth, and then it's five, four, one for the three at the bottom. Mm. And they are all the newly promoted teams. And people keep expecting Burnley to have a bit of a, an improvement, and maybe they will in terms of some results because the football, like between the boxes, as I've said before, for Burnley is all right. I just don't think Burnley are very good in either penalty box, to be honest. Um, Luton are not good in between the boxes either. They just try to be effective where they can in both penalty boxes. It's like the absolute inverse of what Burnley's approach is, to be perfectly honest. Uh, they, they don't really care about that middle third in terms of having the ball and having, you know, general build up play and all that sort of thing, but they will defend every inch of their own penalty box and they'll be as aggressive as they can be in the opposition's penalty box as and when it, you know, is, is applicable for them to be there. I think it's quite notable that out of that bottom four, who have the six points and under, who have only one win or zero in Sheffield United's case, Luton are the one who have conceded fewest goals. You know, that that's really the area where I would look at if I'm say if I'm Luton, if I'm someone who has a vested interest in Luton staying up, that's what I'm looking at. Can you keep that not just the stat, but the the meaning of conceding fewer goals than mm. them? And can you keep that? concentrated to certain matches like because they are going to be beaten they've also scored the most of all the teams in that little they have but it's still under one a game and I think oh yeah with one a game that's really going to struggle across the course of the season but the conceding if you're looking at just staying there or thereabouts you're going to have to get a few draws basically you're going to have to get draws from games that you probably should lose and that probably means conceding goals in clusters against individual teams like getting beat by three and four by Chelsea and Brighton but staying within a goal of Burnley or Everton or Forest so that you can try and sneak that point, basically. So I, I do think that that's not just their best route, but maybe their only route to still being in the survival hunt by February, March, April. Uh, well, their best route is Everton getting a 12-point deduction, really. Yes, yes. Um, and even at that, given Everton's win over West Ham, that would put them on minus two. Yeah, they'd still only be seven points behind Luton, and I think you'd have to back Everton to get seven points more than Luton over the course of the season. Like as we said last week, like, to be honest, even if Everton get the full minus twelve this season, I think they can overcome that. Yeah, they should. Well, they should. The win over West Ham was huge for them because they've got a tough run coming, and they needed to get some more points on the board. The thing with Luton is that it it just it was very obvious when they came up. Given who they targeted, it was very obvious what their plan was. Yeah, that's okay. Let's have a year in the league. Let's go back down, have a championship-ready team that might get us straight back up again. And then the second time of asking, we'll be a bit more Premier League ready. I just hope, Carl, that if this isn't kind of an agreed plan of action within the club, that they're going to be patient then with the manager Rob Edwards and not bin him off come February, March because they're in the bottom three. Yeah, I I hope they're not going to panic in January and go and spend a load of money trying to, you know, well, well, look, maybe we can stay in the division. If you have a plan, stick to it. Rob Edwards has done an incredibly good job since taking over. Like, let's not forget, he... 
did a really good job with Forest Green, got them up, took the Watford job, was sacked by Watford after a few months. It was a month into the season or six weeks into the season, but it's about four months after he'd agreed to take the job. He sits at home for two months and then the phone call he gets is from Watford's biggest rival in Luton, whose manager has just walked out on them for the second time, I might add. And he gets them promoted and he does so by playing a brand of football that's not for everybody, but was incredibly effective. I I really hope they're willing to stick with him. I I don't see much chance of them staying in the division, but I love that Luton are in the Premier League. I love it because they're a small club with a tiny little old ground that when we were kids, they were in the top flight, you know, and you, you didn't, in Ireland, there was very little access to actually watching matches you might get one a week if you were lucky, but you'd, you'd be listening to games on the radio and you'd always hear about Luton and you'd always hear about Kenilworth Road and how tight and narrow it is and the plastic pitch and all of this stuff. And it just seemed like a horrible place to go. Big clubs went there and lost all the time. And then they were gone and they've been all the way down to non-league and worked their way all the way back up through you know, you know the the analogy that Brad Pitt gives in Moneyball about the fifty feet of crap, and then there's us. Luton were the us at, at one point. There was rich teams, poor teams, fifty feet of crap, and then there was them. But they are now back among the rich clubs. Now they're not one of the rich clubs, but they're back competing with them, and it's an incredibly good story to go from the top to the bottom and back up again in the last thirty years. Is is just it's really good for football to see a story like Luton. They've put in quite a bit of work to Kenilworth Road, which you will get to experience for the first time this weekend. And they should just be incredibly proud of the fact that they're here. They're here amongst the Premier League, the the elite of the elite. And they're, they're holding their own. They might go down, but they're not going down with a whimper. They're not Sheffield Uniteding themselves out of the league. They're not. They're not going to be Sunderland or Derby of the past. Like, in all likelihood, they'll be a low twenty-point team. At least you're not going to be historically embarrassed by that. No, absolutely not. And especially, like you say, if that was the plan at the beginning of the season that they've already acknowledged, they probably can't. So they'll have a structure in place for that. No, excuse me, and an allowance in place for that, and. You know, if they manage to get to 20, 25 points, then fine. That's that's what it is. And you build on that. And that's your baseline for next time when you come back to try to improve from. Yeah, very much so. So Liverpool obviously rotated quite heavily in the week. Uh, what kind of 11 are you expecting from Jürgen this weekend? Do you think he goes full strength with the Europa League to rest players for during the week? Or do you think there'll be a little bit more rotation and maybe there's one or two surprise not surprise starters but you know not necessarily first choice starters um i don't think that it'll be surprises for sure i think we'll be fairly close to full strength across these three games now because there's three matches and then the international break my my theory stroke assumption is that basically he's very close to knowing his strongest available team at the minute but before Man City, which is the first game back after the international break, he's probably still got one or two to decide on firmly. And I think that these three games have to be that, basically, figuring out what is the strongest team, what is the tactically the best team, who is in the best shape off the ball, and so on and so forth. So I think Curtis Jones comes back in for this one after his, obviously, domestic suspension is now finished. I think this is maybe a game that he will put him straight back in for and think... You know, defensively off the ball, diligence, retention of possession, all of that kind of thing. Jones was brilliant at it for months and months last season, for two months last season. And then at the start of this season, he had done so again. So can we get that again very, very quickly uh, across the course of the next few matches? Gravenberch has been starting in the Europa anyway, so I imagine he stays there. So that's sort of one dovetailed position. I don't think that too much of the rest will. And then the other is obviously in Diaz's ongoing absence. 
who starts? Is it Jota? Is it Gakpo? So again, would imagine one gets one game, one gets the other game. Um, beyond that, I don't think there's going to be much change at all. Yeah, I think that's very fair. I do think it's very fair. I think I think Curtis has to start in midfield. I, I think the I think the Dominic uh, Gravenberg eight pairing doesn't quite work right now. They're both a little bit too ball dominant and Dominic dominates the ball far more. So Gravenberg can't really impact games when when Dominic is there. I think both of them have looked much better with Curtis as the other eight. Um, so, yeah, I, I would, would absolutely... I think look, Curtis just helps us so much more defensively as well. And Gravenberg has looked good in the Europa League and he's he was good against Leicester, but he hasn't really shown it yet against Premier League opposition, even in the week against Bournemouth in the Cup. So, you know, they're still bringing him along. He's still adapting to a new club, a new league, a new environment, all the rest. It's clear the talent is there. It's just going to be about putting it all together. His best performance, like with Dominic, also came with Curtis as the other eight. Because I think they both work better with that almost facilitator type of eight as the other one. So they can be the kind of creative ball dominant one. Um, yeah, I think he'll go fairly strong. Trent, right back, Ibu and Virgil. Left back, I wouldn't be overly surprised if Callum Chambers came in and Costas got a rest. But I think it'll be Costas. Midfield, Dominic. Alexis Curtis, Mo Darwin, and I think it could be Cody. And I'd quite like to see it be Mo Darwin, Cody, with Cody as the left winger, just to see how that works. And obviously, Allison would be in goal. Uh, what's your prediction for this game? Um, I'm going to go that we've started matches quite well of late. Um, we've obviously scored within the first half hour or so in the last three. So I'm going to say mm. that that happens again and we are a little bit ruthless. So I'm going to go for 4-1. Oh, interesting. Um, hmm. So their heaviest home defeat thus far has only been, they've been beaten three times at home by West Ham, Burnley and Spurs and they lost each of them by one goal. Mm -hmm. You're going for a three goal win. They haven't played Liverpool yet. They haven't, but Spurs, You mentioned Forest away and that they had only lost by one and we liked it to lose and, you know, Liverpool playing well. Liverpool Liverpool are playing well. No, Liverpool are playing very well at the moment. And Spurs obviously played half that game with 10 men. So, you know, if they'd had the full complement for the 90, they may well have beaten them by a couple of goals. I'll go 3-0. I'll go 3-0 to Liverpool. We, We look significantly better defensively. Virgil is playing tremendous football. Their primary route to goal is the long punt up the field. In Virgil and Ibu, we have two lads that absolutely dominate in the air. So I think we nullify that. We nullify their set pieces because we're a big, strong team who are good in the air. They're slow defensively. I think we'll cut them open. And like you said, they don't care about the middle of the park. They'll be hard to break down, but I think once we get that first goal, I think we'll we'll grow in confidence. I'll go 3-0 to the Reds. Um... Right, and that's it. We didn't talk a whole lot about Luton, admittedly. Frankly, they just don't deserve all that much time. There was more interesting stuff to talk about. Harry will have an in-depth kind of look at Luton on Rival Recon, so do check that out. Uh, Is there anything you want to plug before we go? Yeah, I've got a piece which is out today on the Independent, which is uh, Liverpool's a couple of decisions that they've got to make. A little bit of what I was talking about there, about um, the get quote. Jota, Jones, Gravenberch, and a little bit more. It's like a mini rebuild within the rebuild that we've got going on down that left-hand side at the moment through unexpected reasons, basically. Uh, so just look in a bit more detail at that. Cool. Right. So check that out. Follow Carl on Twitter at Carl Matchett. Follow Guy Drinkle at Guy Drinkle. And we will see you next week. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. 
We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.